0: Amen. Thanks, Catherine. What's up, everyone? Oh, that's so nice of you. Happy Palm Sunday to you. I am bummed that we're not doing the typical kids thing here with palm fronds and stuff. I was really looking forward to Archie being the kid this year who hits other kids in the head with the palms. But maybe next year, maybe next year. I don't think he'll grow out of that. Uh, But good morning to you here in this room. It's great to see your faces. So, so somebody awesome Faces everyone joining us out in the plaza. We're all gonna be quiet here. Plaza, can you make some noise? Are you out there? Oh, come on! Hi, hi, and then, of course, everyone joining us online. Can you give us some praise hands in the chat? Just, just do some praise hands. Let us know that you're with us. Uh, we're just gonna jump right in here. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, open them up, turn them on, go to Acts 13. We're continuing on in our series this morning through. Uh, what, we're called, what we're calling unstoppable, and what we've been doing through this series in Acts is that we've been tracing the unstoppable gospel by the power of the Spirit, uh, the uns- unstoppable spread of the gospel. And I don't know if you've ever gotten to the end of Acts before, but what's interesting when you get to the end of the book of Acts is there's no classic ending. There's no uh, the end there's no classic ending. It's just, it doesn't end like a normal other book. It's, it just kind of leaves you hanging. And I think that's for a reason. I think what that means for us today is that it tells us that God is not done rescuing. He's not done redeeming. He's not done transforming the lives of people by the power of the gospel. I mean, you and I, we are here today because of the gospel swell. That began here in the book of Acts, and it's still reaching our shores today, 2,000 years later. God is still very much active, active and moving and, and working through his spirit-empowered church to declare and to demonstrate the gospel so that all might come to know and to trust Jesus. And so uh, today we're in Acts 13, and it's almost smack dab, almost. Smack dab right in the middle of the book of Acts. And what we're going to look at today is, this is this kind of cool? It's kind of cool. It's the Apostle Paul's very first recorded sermon. Pretty sweet. I don't want anybody going back and listening to my first recorded sermon. No thanks. But I'm so glad that Luke captured, took time to, to capture and write down what Paul said so that, and that it's been preserved over these years so that we can learn from that today and uh speaking of being a proverbial fly on the wall uh we mentioned this before that i love anytime that the apostles through in scripture specifically this early church anytime that they we get to be a proverbial fly on the wall and anytime that they open their mouth to speak and to share the message of christ we get to hear kind of what was it that they emphasized what was it that was important to them you know we get to as we read these stories we get to kind of see how did they describe it how what mattered to them what was the good news What was the big deal? What difference did it make? And so several thousand years later here, removed from this, it's easy for us to to lose sight of the the original, the core message of Christianity and make make it about a thousand other things. Just like the the telephone game, you know, that, that the message can get distorted and get distracted off of what it originally was. And what's so cool about Acts is that we get this unfiltered look This unfiltered look into what it was that they cared about, what the message was. And that's what we're going to see today. Again, it's Paul's very first recorded sermon. I mean, this is like his rookie season as a preacher. This is his rookie season. We're going to see his first recorded message. Sure, he had a lot of experience in Judaism, but the scales had fallen from his eyes He was now His life was now radically reoriented Around the person and the work Of Jesus Christ He had, he had kind of given up He'd broken up with religion And law keeping A law based life And was now a slave of Jesus Christ Who Jesus is What Jesus did That was now his core message And So if you're, if you're ready to go Paul's going to bring some fire So uh, let's jump in here Acts 13 Verse 13 now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But going on from Perga, they arrived at, wait a second. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold the phone. Hold. John left them? What do you mean John left them? I mean, everything was, John, John left? Everything was going fantastic last week. Last week, they, they embarked on this mission. It, it was great. There was, it almost seemed like Paul, Barnabas, and John, they were like this dream team. PBJ, PBJ, Paul, Barnabas, John. John left? Why? Well, I mean, what happened? They were the dream team. Okay, guys, this feels a little bit like gossiping, but... I'm not going to dwell on this very long, and and please don't post anything about this. Please don't post about this. But yeah, John, I think there's some drama going on. There's some serious drama up in camp. I mean, Luke, he just kind of breezes over it here. He just breezes right past it. But you know, later on, we actually find out Paul was actually really hurt by this. He was hurt by this. He felt abandoned. He felt betrayed. He felt deserted. He felt deserted. Can you imagine like what in the world is going on there? What's going on? This is some serious drama. Why'd John leave? You know, and I know what you're thinking because I thought it too. I thought these were the super spiritual guys. That they're not supposed to have these kinds of issues that we have. That they're they don't experience like relational drama. They're so mature and spiritual, they never get in fights, never have disagreements. I mean, they probably always got along and they sang kumbaya around the fire. At least that's what I learned. That's what I thought. But this, I'm so glad that this little mention is here because it tells us something. It it, it tells us that life, life is actually messy. That people are actually messy. That ministry, missions, doing God's work is actually very messy it's not always puppy dogs and lollipops and kumbaya around the fire and laughing and pushing each other into the bushes, Ha! Ah, having a great time. No, it's, it can and will be messy and hard and tough. And this side of heaven, you and I, we will feel pain. We will also inflict pain. We will feel wounded and we will inflict wounds on others. You see, relationships with people, I mean, these are most often the places where we encounter our deepest wounds. Our deepest wounding comes from people most often. And ironically, what's crazy about this whole thing is that it's ironically the people that we are closest to that we tend to hurt the most or be hurt by the most. It's dangerous. See, relationships, they can soar. They can can fly into these heights of being encouraged and supported and strengthened, but they also can suffer. You see, it's in the context of relationships where our mess, our junk, and our issues all come out, and that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing because when that stuff surfaces, when it comes out, it actually gives us a really, really amazing opportunity to experience giving and receiving love and grace with one another. And I think that's what God's plan for us is is that we would experience giving and receiving love and grace. You see, he modeled it well, and his forgiveness and reconciliation with us actually is what fuels and motivates our forgiveness and reconciliation with one another. We don't know why John left. We don't know why. There are a lot of theories out there. But the stories like this, it reminds us that no one, none of us, none of that, no one ever graduates from grace. We never outgrow our need for God's grace in our life. They didn't, and neither do we. And so when we, when we see these, these stories of these people, there are real people with real tensions and real dynamics, and it's messy, and it can get, there's struggles and all of those things. That these are the people that we're, we're not looking up to them because they somehow achieved perfection with one another. No, we don't look up to them because they achieved perfection. They're far from it. What we can learn, though, is that from these imperfect people, we can learn what it looks like to have to apply grace in the everyday stuff of life, especially in the context of our relationships. So we don't know why John left. We, know, we just know that no one ever outgrows their need for God's grace, even the super apostles, the super Christians here that we're reading about. Again, there's more on that story when we get to chapter 15 sometime after Easter, but let's continue on here. Verse 14. But going on from Perga, they, Paul, Barnabas, Sands, uh, John, PB, no J, arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. If you were here last week, you saw Ryan, he flashed a little map up on, on there. If you're curious, like, where's all this happening? You know, he did a little map. But guys, guess what? In your Bibles, there's, like, maps. You know, I mean... The maps are what got me through church a lot of times as a kid. I'm like, I need to see some pictures. What's going on? So I would just go to the maps. You know, so, but this is great because one of the maps in the Bible is typically lays out Paul's missionary journeys. It's all color-coded and it's great. So spend some time in your maps. Do your quiet times in the maps this week. Uh, but what we're talking about here is modern-day Turkey, that area. Um, okay, so let's notice when it is here first it's it's this is all taking place on the sabbath the sabbath it's the big day it's the day the big sacred day when when jews would congregate to talk religion and to do this service and it's also notice where it's taking place in a synagogue a synagogue so it makes me wonder why in the world are paul and barnabas Going to a synagogue. I mean, why are they there? Why are followers of Jesus Christ, why are followers of what was known as the Way? I mean, what are they doing at a synagogue, a Jewish synagogue? I mean, weren't the Jews the ones who hated the, the message of Christianity? Weren't they the ones that were trying to silence Christianity? Weren't they the ones who were strongly opposing it, opposing followers of this Jesus guy? I mean, weren't they the ones? I mean, if you would, and you would think too with Paul's own history that he'd be like, shoot, I'm not going back there. I've seen the light. I've seen the light. I'm not going back there. That's where I can't, I'm done with that. I'm moving on. You would think that Paul would kind of just be over that and want to get onto this new thing that had captured his heart and his life. But no, they make this their first stop on this trip. What are they doing? I think. What they are doing is bridging the gap. We are going to see them bridge the gap. They're going to meet, they are going to meet people where they are at, people who need Jesus. They're meeting them where they are at. And what's so fascinating is that we are going to actually see, rather than opposing it, like we're actually going to see a leader of the synagogue here actually ask Paul to share to, to ask him, like, hey, we want to hear from you. See, most of the time in the temples and the synagogues, the message of, of Christ was getting opposed. Uh, they were pushing Christians away, trying to silence the message of Jesus. But here, on this particular Sabbath day, in this particular synagogue, they're actually going to ask for it. They're going to ask for it. They're going to ask Paul to speak, to preach. And Paul and Barnabas are there to bridge the gap. They're meeting people where they're at, and they're looking for opportunities to talk about Jesus. And they're not rebelling against Judaism. They're not throwing stones at it. No, they're engaging with it. They're bridging the gap. And I think it's pretty cool, too. You think about Paul. I mean, his history, he didn't, uh, his, like, his story and who he was, he didn't abandon all of his experience, all of his education He didn't abandon that. No, actually what we see here is he's beginning to redeem it. You see, he is meeting people where they are at in the exact same place that he has spent his entire life. In the synagogue, on the Sabbath, with fellow Jews. So that's when it is and where it is and who. Let's look at what takes place. Verse 15. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent word to them saying, Brothers, this is the invitation, brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So the opportunity is here. The opportunity is here. And Paul, again, he grew up in this. He knows how this whole thing works. He knows the flow of the service. He knows what's going to happen. He knows what typically would follow right here. Sure enough, he stands up and he starts to speak, and he delivers his first recorded sermon that we're going to go through right now. Today's a sermon about a sermon. How fun is that? This sermon is just in three parts. Let's look at this first part. Verse 16. Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen, listen. Listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. For a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. After these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. Give us a king, we want a king, give us a king. So he gave them a king. He gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. After he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Okay, so this is part one of a three-part sermon. And really, if we had to kind of um, label this section, it would just be the retelling of Israel's history. And this is very uh, common. I mean, we, we looked at back at the sermons of Peter and Stephen. There was like a, they did the, the same thing. It was a common template of retelling of, the, of Israel's history. But what is Paul doing here? Again, he's meeting them where they are at. He's establishing common ground. He's identifying with them. He's appealing them to their shared story, their shared history, which has formed their collective identity as a people. He's saying, this is Israel, all of you. Listen, this is who we are. This is who we are, and this is what God has done. You're all familiar with this. It's who we are, and this is what God has done. And notice, too, like through that entire telling of, of Israel's history, all of the action, all of the verbs, all of the action words are all God's actions. He's the one doing all the action. He's the one verbing all of the the verbs. English teachers, is that okay? He's the one verbing all the verbs. He's the one doing all of the action. You see, it's, it's, it's God who is the primary headline throughout Israel's history. Not their sin, although there was a lot of it. Not their failures, which there was a lot of. or the rebellion, which there was a lot of that as well. No, it's not that. It's not them that's the primary headline. It's God's faithfulness. It's his power, his patience, his promise. It's his initiative and action driven by his loving kindness. That is what forms the primary narrative of Israel. God's always been good. He's always been faithful. He's delivered us, and when we were faithless, he was faithful. I mean, look at some of the people loosely mentioned and, uh, and referenced in Israel's history. He didn't say Moses by name. He will in a moment. But he referenced that time. I mean, we, if you know anything about Moses, you know that uh, all the things he was known for, one of them was murder. One of them was murder. He said, David, a man after my own heart. Murderer. Did a lot of great things. You know, but still, was a murder. I mean, these are these are the kinds of people that are mentioned, and you and I, we we typically think or are tempted to believe that that God is on the hunt. He's on the prowl for the spotless lambs, lambs without blemishes, so that he can be he can use you. If you messed up, please move along. That's what we typically think. We shrink back at the thought that God could somehow use us, even with all of our screw-ups our mess-ups. We shrink back at that. We shrink back at the thought that, man, I've got a past, I've got a, 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 I got a background, I've got a story, I've got a lot of failure. And We shrink back to think that God would want to use that. The story of Israel is riddled with imperfect people being used by a perfect God to accomplish a perfect plan. So Paul, he meets them where, they're, where they are at. He has summarized their history, But he doesn't stop there. Jumps into part two of this sermon. And right here, he bridges the gap, and he gives them Jesus. Verse 23. From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John had proclaimed, before his coming, a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And while John was completing his course, he kept saying... What do you suppose that I am? I'm not he, but behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. A really quick note on this, John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a, a pre-runner to Christ. So he came, he came before Jesus' ministry. I know this is stating the obvious, but it means he also came before the cross. And his message was a message of repentance, of repentance. What's the message of repentance? I'm so glad you asked. Fantastic question. Well, Repentance is the message of, hey, stop what you're doing. Stop what you're doing. Stop what you're thinking. And do and think differently. Turn from your sin. Quit what you're doing. Quit what you're thinking. You see, the stuff that you've been doing is not good. Turn from it. Change. Quit it. And as important of a message that that is, I want you to hear this. As important of a, of a message as that is: repentance alone, repentance in and of itself, is not good news. It's not good news. You see, repentance alone is not the gospel. But this was John's message. His message was, "You're off base. you're doing it wrong. You need to to turn. Your behavior's bad. It needs to change. Oh, and by the way, by the way, there's someone coming who's after me who's even greater. There's someone greater coming. No, no, no. I'm not him. I'm, I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes, but he's coming. He's coming soon. He's greater than I am. Let's be prepared. He's coming. But right now, right now, what your action step is, stop your sinning. Turn. So in and of itself, that is the message of repentance. It's really, it's a a message of what you do and what you promise to do for God. That's not the same as the message of what God in Christ has done for you. You see, until Jesus came, until the cross happened, John's message of repentance was, dude, that was the best message available. That was the best message on the market. The message of repentance but after the cross after the resurrection there's something so much bigger something so much brighter than the message of repentance alone and this is what paul he wants his audience to see it's not it doesn't stop with john the baptist here's our history and then john came and he prepared the way for jesus but he was not jesus he wasn't he wasn't the one he prepared and so he bridges the gap and now he gives them jesus I think it's very important, too, that any message, any sermon that does not get to Jesus is an unfinished sermon. If all we stand up here and do is tell you to repent, get your act together, stop your sinning, fix it, come on, get, let's go. Here's, here's five, ste- five, way, five ways you can do that. If we don't get to Jesus and show that Jesus is finished, it, it's an unfinished sermon. He moves on. He points him to Jesus. Verse 26. brothers, sons of Abraham's family and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. He mentions Abraham. What did Abraham do? <laughs> well, it doesn't say that Abraham repented and it was credited to him as righteousness. No, it said Abraham believed God. He believed God. He offered his only son Isaac and that was credited to him as Righteousness. In the same way, you and I, we offer ourselves. We believe God. We trust Jesus. Verse 27 For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, he's about to get into everything that we're going to be looking at this week Palm Sunday leading up to Easter. This is where he's at now. Those who live in Jerusalem, And their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the declarations of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no grounds for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. When they had carried out everything that was written concerning them, they took him down from the cross and laid him in the tomb. Verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days... He appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. I wasn't there, I wasn't there, but, but now we, I, now me, we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to those of us who are the descendants by raising Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have fathered you. As for the fact that he raised him from the dead, never again to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and faithful mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. For David, after he had served God's purpose in his own generation, fell asleep and was buried among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. See, Paul, he's, he's showing, there's so much that could be said about this. So, but he's, he's showing Israel that all of our history, all of this stuff is, has prepared and predicted and pointed to Jesus. It all culminates with him. It all points to the death, but not just the death, but he was buried, and not just that, but he also was raised from the dead. The death, burial, resurrection, that's the, the central message of the gospel. And it wasn't this gospel wasn't just a random thing that happened. Oh, that was cool. Like, look what happened. No, no, it had been talked about, and it had been pointed to and predicted. See, Paul is connecting the dots, and just in a few sentences there, he's worked his way all the way from, from the time of Moses to David and all the way down to Jesus. He shows that Jesus is the point. Not David. Not these other guys, these, these, these fathers that we have looked up to. They're not the point. The point is Jesus. See, the son, capital S, son, talked about in Psalm 2. That's not talking about David. David turned into miracle Grow. It's not, not about him. No, no, this is about Jesus. Jesus is the son. So why, why would you look and spend your time looking to, to Moses or to David or to any of these, these guys... Who were pointing the whole time to Jesus. Verse 27, we read this, but let me read this again. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the declarations of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. The story that we talk about every Sabbath as we gather in the synagogue the story that we're obsessed with we read we discuss we talk we scour through these scriptures we're obsessed with them they all point to jesus and if we've missed it everything that happened was predicted it was all talked about in scripture they they lived it out and the same, the same thing is true for us today. I mean, we can come here week after week. We can, you know, spend hours and hours each day, each week, like studying the Bible, looking, knowing everything that we possibly can about the Bible, memorizing large portions of it, you know, spending all kinds of time in the maps, knowing the maps, I know it all. Like, we can do all of that, and, and we can still miss the point of the Bible. Because if we miss Jesus, we miss the point. what we've seen so far is Paul, he meets them where they're at. He draws upon their common history that they share together. He summarizes it, and then he bridges the gap. and He gives them Jesus, and he points to Jesus as the fulfillment. He's the fulfillment of everything that we've been expecting and anticipating and waiting for. Now he gets to part three of this sermon, and in part three, he gives both an invitation as well as a warning. Verse 38, Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Oh, there's that sweet word, forgiveness. Forgiveness. And this would have been a very familiar concept to his audience, to these listeners they, they knew about forgiveness, but the forgiveness that Paul is describing here is a forgiveness that is radically, radically different compared to the forgiveness that they understood. You see, before the cross, forgiveness was, of sins was something that had to be repeated over and over and over and over and over and over. And over. <laughs> All, repeated over and over and over again. Animals being killed, so much blood, So much, so many years of just forgiveness, like repeated over and over and over again. That was all little by little forgiveness. Little by little, little by little, animals dying, blood everywhere. It was all little by little forgiveness. What's so amazing is that after the cross, what we see is not little by little forgiveness. We see once for all forgiveness. When the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, when he died, when he shed his blood, there's once for all forgiveness. And so my encouragement to all of us today is if we are living our lives thinking that we get, God just is dosing out forgiveness little by little to us, and that any sin that remains unconfessed is unforgiven, you are living under an old covenant, an Old Testament idea and understanding of forgive—excuse me of forgiveness. Forgiveness is not little by little. It's once for all. See, Jesus is not up in heaven. Think about this: He's not up in heaven, dying on a cross over and over and over and over again. Like, Dang it, Nick! I, I wish you got your act together, man. I just got done dying on the cross, and you go and screw it up again. I got to get back up there and do it all over again. He's not dying on a cross over and over and over again. No, he died once for all. It is finished, paid in full. Your sins no longer separate you from God. It's not a barrier. It's paid for. And then in verse 39, through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. So there's forgiveness, but now there's freedom! Freedom! Freed from what? (laughs) Great question. Freed from the sin, freed from the power of sin. Freed so that you can now choose differently. Freed from your past, your shame, your guilt. Freed from having to measure up to some kind of standard. Free from having to play the religion game. We're free to be ourselves. When you play the religion game, you can't be yourself. You've gotta pretend, you've gotta bluff, you gotta hide, you gotta fake your way. You gotta pretend like you've got everything together. But now we're free to fail. We don't have to hide or bluff our way through life. And when we live this way, take this free fall into God's grace, when we live this way, people now around us get a, they get to see into our lives, see in and they get to see see what it looks like to live a, a life of freedom in Jesus. They get a glimpse of what freedom, the freedom that Jesus brings, what that looks like. Now I used to think, that. What people needed most from me was my wins, my successes, like all the great things that I do for God. They need, people need to see that. And so when they say, wow, that's cool, I'm gonna, I'm able to say, dude, it's all God. It's all God. Like that's, that's what people needed to be inspired to live this life. That's what I used to think, and I'm starting to get suspicious of that. <laughs> I'm starting to to think what people actually need are not my wins and my successes as great as those might be. What they need to see is me and my failure and loss. And they need to see the dependence on Jesus in those moments. It's not when we are strong and pulled together and none of us are, so why are we pretending? But that that people look at that and be like, oh, I'm so inspired to live the Christian life because of the way you are so strong. Yeah! No, no, people need to see our dependence on Jesus, and he shows up the most in our weakness. And what's so cool is that when we understand the freedom that we have, we're invited to, to live this life of transparency, and that people get to see that. They get to actually see what freedom on display looks like. So we're not just declaring the gospel, we're demonstrating it by our trust in Jesus. He's enough, even in our failure. What's interesting, too, is that the word for freed here can also be translated justified or declared righteous. You see, the, the, the Old Testament, the law, it could tell you what righteousness looks like. I mean, it could describe it. It could describe it in 613 different ways. Here's what righteousness looks like, but it has no ability to provide what it demands. It cannot deliver what it demands. It can't, the law cannot empower the life that it requires. It cannot empower you to live the life that it requires of you. Grace can. Grace is the fuel for our tanks. Grace is what is meant to empower and motivate and inspire our lives. See, the good news of the gospel is not, it's once for all forgiveness, but it's also that you're justified, you're declared righteous. You are 100% okay. You are off the charts perfect, 100% righteous. You are invited now to live from that real reality. It's real. It's a real reality. You are invited to live from perfect behavior, (laughs) no. Perfect mindsets, not always. Perfect performance, Far, far from it. But perfect at the core of our being, in our identity as a new creation, you better believe it. 100% righteous. I want you to think about this. You are as righteous right now as Jesus. If You are in Christ. You are as righteous right now as Jesus. Can we say that in church? Is that okay? Oh my goodness, I feel, you know... If, I don't know if I'm supposed to say that. No, because here's the deal. The righteousness that we have is not our own. It's the righteousness of Christ given to us. He makes us righteous. And so for us to say, no, no, I'm like maybe 60% righteous. Well, Jesus didn't give you 60% righteousness. He gave you his. And he is righteous. So Paul concludes his sermon with the invitation to believe and to trust Jesus, to receive the once and for all forgiveness, to, to unhitch the wagon from law-based living and from religion, and to free fall into grace, to hitch your, hit your wagon, your faith to the finished work of Jesus Christ. But in part three, it's not only the invitation, it's also a warning. In verse 40 he says, therefore, see that the things spoken of in the prophets does not come upon you. Look you scoffers, and here he's quoting Habakkuk 1.5. He says, look, you scoffers, be astonished and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. And I'm wondering in that moment, is he, is he looking at the faces of the people listening to him, if he's starting to see people get angry? People respond favor- favorably here, but it only takes one week later. <laughs> There's a very different response if you, if you read on. Maybe he's, start, he's starting to see that the faces change and he puts out the warning. Guys, don't miss this. Don't scoff at this. Don't ignore this. Don't disregard this news. And Paul here, he's not the angry preacher standing on the street corner with a bullhorn saying, turn or burn. He's not that, no, he's a loving brother. He, he loved his fellow countrymen. He, he loved them deeply. He wanted them to know that the faith in Jesus Christ would bring forgiveness. It would bring justification. Freedom. But that rejecting it would bring punishment. He's laying it all out there. He's a loving brother pleading with his fellow Jews to believe and to see that in the person of Jesus, all of their hopes All of their dreams are realized. Then the service ends. Verse 42. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people repeatedly begged to have these things spoken to them the next Sabbath. See, they had all gotten a taste of grace. They'd gotten a taste of it. They had had heard the gospel. And what was what was the result? For many of them, they said, do it again. Do it again. Just like a, a child. Daddy, daddy, do it again. Do it again. Do it again. We, can we have more of that? We're flying free. I, I, wanna, I want to hear that again next week. Can you please come back? Please come back. We want to hear this. Do it again. Just like a good meal that is, uh, that is served up. When you're done eating the meal, you're just like, I can't wait to have more of that. Please, can we have this the next week? Please, can we have this? Can we have more of this? You see, grace is compelling. Grace is compelling. Please, can we have more of this? In verse 43, many of the Jews and the God-fearing proselytes, they followed Paul and Barnabas Who were speaking to them and urging them to continue in the grace of god just like we've said before god's grace is not just a diving board that we jump off to jump off of into this pool called christianity and then we swim to deeper theological waters we don't swim past grace no grace is the pool itself it's the diving board and it is the pool and we jump in by god's grace and we swim deeper and deeper and deeper into his grace And in closing, the whole, this whole message, Paul's first, very first recorded sermon, very first recorded sermon, it provides you and I with an empowering reminder as well. An empowered reminder in saying that we too, that you and I, we too are called to grow in grace. You know, this was a very Jewish audience, a very Jewish context that's going on here, and this is not a very Jewish context going on here at Seacoast. But the same temptation exists that, that existed then. That you hear about grace and it's like, that's amazing, but I'm going to dip my toes back into law. Yeah, Jesus was good to save me, but I'm just going to dip myself back into, put the yoke of slavery back on. I'm going to get back into just the, the, the law-based living. Thinking that our acceptance and our, our significance, our security comes from what we do. It's so easy to slip back into that, but we are called to grow and grace. As we sing often, it's a line from Amazing Grace. It says, "Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and it is grace that will lead me home. It's grace. From start to finish. It's all grace. And what is so cool is that as you and I grow in grace, that God is going to bring people into our sphere, into our world's that will need the same grace and that you and I we will be able to meet them where they are at in the midst of their mess their struggle whatever it is that they are going through and we can bridge the gap it may not be in one conversation it may be over a 15-year friendship it's truth over time but we get to bridge that gap and to give them Jesus as well grace for us in us and grace through us to the lives of others. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much, Lord, for meeting us here. Coming and doing what you did, Lord, 2,000 years ago as you made your way to the cross. Knowing what you would have to endure, knowing what you would have to experience, but for you to say, it's worth it. It's worth it. These are my kids. And because of what happened on that cross, Lord, and because of the resurrection, God, everything has changed. Everything has changed. And I thank you for the reminder today that we, that we have heard. That's not about what we do or what we accomplish or what we fail to do or fail to accomplish. It's about your work. And we thank you for that. I pray for my brothers and sisters. That you would continue to press down that truth deeper into our lives and express yourself through us. We love you. Praise in your name. Amen.